You're listening to Auto D coming at you live. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Auto D show here on Dave Pratt's Star Worldwide Network Studios, broadcasting from high above Camelback Road in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. I am your host, Otto Daniolo, and this evening, my guest is a longtime friend and an incredible guitarist. He's played with Dave Pratt's Sex Machine Band back in the day. Uh, he's also played with his very successful smooth jazz group, his own, called Turning Point. He spent years on the road with Sister Sledge and continues to perform uh, when not quarantined with either his brother, uh, Dimitri, or his wife, Lauren, and any number of other incredible members of this music community. Thana will be right with us after this song, which actually features his guitar playing, his songwriting, and uh, producing skills, called Persian Kitty, here on the Auto D Show. Check it out.
listening to Auto D coming at you live. And that was Persian Kitty by the Sonus Brothers, one of whom is my guest tonight here on the Auto D Show, which is brought to you by Fervor Records and TheRecordingArtist.com. You can find Fervor at F-E-R-V-O-R hyphen records.com and TheRecordingArtist.com at, you guessed it, TheRecordingArtist.com. And uh, I have bulletins from both of our sponsors tonight. First, from Fervor Records, due to ever-growing concerns surrounding the COVID-19 virus or the coronavirus, the upcoming 2020 Music Biz Summit, scheduled for April 4th, has been canceled. And I repeat, the 2020 Music Biz Summit, scheduled for April 4th, has been canceled. And it's a heartbreak. I know I was looking so forward to participating, but what are you going to do? I guess there's always next year to stay tuned for that incredible event when it comes back around. And second, TheRecordingArtist.com has begun broadcasting free concerts of local artists from their website. These concerts feature a number of area artists whose performance schedules, and therefore their income, have been completely wiped out for the foreseeable future. If you have interest in live music, please, please go to the site and sign up. It's free to do so. And then watch the concerts and hit the donate button if you can afford a dollar or two or maybe 20. I mean, most of these guys are really in a tight spot. But uh, they get 100% of the money that's donated. It all goes directly to the artist. You'll notice when you hit the donate button, the PayPal button that opens up has their name on it. It goes right to their bank account. So uh, check that out while you're quarantined and see if you don't enjoy the shows. And then even on a personal note, my long-awaited honeymoon in Europe got scratched off the calendar too. I know. But I guess in some way, you know, we've all been impacted by this pandemic and by the processes employed to curtail its spread. So Keep your social social distancing efforts intact and your sanity intact, and we'll get through this thing together. All right. And then on another note, uh, let me welcome to the show this evening's guest, one of my favorite studio guitarists and a really cool person that I admire and a good friend, Mr. Thano Sanas. How are you doing, Thano? I'm great, Otto. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, I was talking to my wife the other day, and I thought, gosh, who, who do I want to call up to get on the show next? And I was thinking, I think she asked if I had had you on. I'm like, of course I have. You know, I started, I think, and I went back through my list, and you're not listed on the 200 names. And I thought, how in the world did I know? I must have invited you at some point, and you were busy. Something must have happened. Well, I'm grateful to be here now. So, again, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm glad to have you. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've done so much together over the years. I remember you're one of, you were one of the first session guitar players that I called up and just loved how I could work with you as a producer. And then accordingly, uh, you were always the first call guy for almost every single project over a 20-year span. So we've done a lot of work together, including all the records that, that I put out of my stuff that you played on. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, too. But before we do, uh, you come, you're, you're a completely musical family between you and your brother and your wife always playing. But I'm interested in kind of where that all started. So take me back and tell me how you got started in music. Uh, It started very early. I think in the fourth grade for me, uh, we came from a very musical family. Uh, Our fourth grade music teacher uh, somehow recommended that my brother and I audition for the Phoenix Boys Choir of all the things. And we made it. So we were actually singing in the Phoenix Boys Choir age eight, nine, ten years old. and we moved on from that, and we were taking piano lessons. I did not want to learn how to read music. I was avoiding it. As a 10-year-old kid, I wanted to be jumping garbage cans with my bicycle and just playing <laughs> like a kid, you know. Yeah. But I had to take these piano lessons, and 
what happened was the teacher would play whatever the lesson of the week was, and I would start singing it in my head while she was playing it and memorize it in my head mm-hmm. and then go home and sit in front of the piano for two or three hours after the lesson and just work it out until I could play it from memory. And then I would just practice that all week. And my mom thought, oh, my gosh, Thano's really excelling on the piano, which I wasn't. <laughs> I was excelling at cheating is what I was doing because I would go back to the lesson and she would put the music in front of me and I would put my head up so it looked like I was staring at the music and look straight down and play the keys from memory. So a couple of years of that went by and I heard my mom playing the chords to an old song called Blue Moon. She was playing it and singing it on the guitar. And I'd gotten to the point where I was learning music by ear. I was 11 years old, and I bet my mom $5. I said, you show me those chords, and I'll go practice for 30 minutes, and I will come back and play this song for you. And I did that. And the next week, piano lessons were out for Dimitri and I, and guitar lessons were in. Awesome. And it went that fast. So that's really how this whole thing started. Mm Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. And then it goes on into a long career. Yeah. But well, it really began. And was, there, your, so. was your father, on, did he play an instrument as well? My father played violin. He conducted music for the ASU Orchestra. But uh, my father's relationship with music is like on the deepest, most spiritual levels of his soul. I, As a little kid, I just remember how dad's record player was off limits because he did not want us kids messing with his music. He constantly was listening to the big band jazz era of Ella Fitzgerald and Benny Goodman uh, to Jose Feliciano, just really, and music that was really written with intense emotional lyric Mm -hmm. was his thing. He'd put on his headphones and probably tune us out is what he was doing. You know, Mm -hmm. now that I'm a father, I understand that, (laughs) but, but you know, so the, the love for music, I think really was instilled in us from our father uh, for sure. Mm hmm. And now you mentioned, uh, you know, you and your brother both joined the boys' choir at the same time. You've uh, continued to work together on and off throughout your lives. Has it has there always been kind of a competitive thing, or has it always been you just always found your place together as partners? Uh, it's been we found our place together as partners. Uh, early on, it, Dimitri gravitated towards playing bass, and I gravitated towards the guitar. So with that said, we needed each other to make mm-hmm. music together. And it's been that way ever since. Now, Dimitri's moved further and further into the world of music production and audio production. I've moved further and further into the world of composing. And, and at that point, we need each other again. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, at every given time, we can't do this thing without the other one. Mm-hmm. I can go off and play solo, but it's uncomfortable for me to do so. Because I feel like I'm not as good as it as I am playing with my brother. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Now the song we played at the top of the show, Persian Kitty. Tell me a little bit about that track. The Persian Kitty track was definitely more of Dimitri's production vision. Uh, we were in the studio. He had the groove going. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where the melody came from, but I know that I started playing some things, and we made a demo of it. Uh, and I believe the recording you played there, did we put that, uh, did we do that in your studio way back when? I don't even remember. I, I don't think so. It doesn't sound, it sounds really like prepared. Well, the only time we did it was for the, the original series of the recording that's on the right. show uh, back in 2013, I think. 
Um, you guys came in and did do that cut. That's the first time I heard the cut. I think that's tracks from that session because cool. I could hear Todd Shuba's drumming. There you go. In the track okay. that we just heard. Uh, so when we did it, we did most of that. I think if not all of it was live. Yeah. Uh, in your studio and uh, you know, but in the format of the recording artist, then you know we had three hours to put it together, rehearse mm-hmm. it, record it, and call it done. Yeah. So I just listened to that song in its entirety for the first time, probably in years. In mm-hmm. your studio now, and I'm like, wow, I really like that song, and That's that arrangement great. is great. Well, we probably should finish our album. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This record is that song really isn't out. No, it's not out. So that was no. kind of like a world premiere. That's a world premiere of Persian Kitty, the unreleased version, because you probably have a different version on the final record. And know, and interestingly, um, you know, I just finished my first feature film at the beginning of this year. Oh, by the way. Congratulations on the sweetheart deal. Oh, thank I you. did watch it. Did you? Watch I, we just haven't spoken about it. We've been, we've true. had a crazy busy season until all of our jobs disappeared. Was, so. it, as, was it as ADD as I as you think I am? <laughs> it was it was great, but my three year old was watching it with me, uh-huh. and then we get to this scene about 10, 12 minutes in, and I'm like, oh no, I got to stop the movie. I got to stop the movie, and it happens to be one of our songs playing in the background, and I'm like, <laughs> it was just the most surreal thing that that's I'm listening funny. to me and censoring at the same time. That's funny. So, yeah, in fact, that's why I brought it up. But Persian Kitty was one of the songs that I first asked you about using in the film because it has such character. And I have a character in the show who I wanted music blaring in her house all the time. Every time we go to her house, there's loud music. And when you, when the person's on the other side of the phone, you even hear the music coming through the phone. Right, right, And it was right. always Persian Kitty for like the first three scenes in that house. <laughs> it's just it. such a perfect energy, you know, and such a neat, neat song. Very, very cool. And the guitar work and violin work on it is amazing. But speaking of that, since we're on Persian Kitty, uh, this would be considered a Saunders Brothers track. Absolutely. Um, so who else is involved in the Saunders Brothers band and recordings other than the two of you, you and your brother Dimitri? Uh, we have the blessing to have in our musical world Suzanne Lansford as a violinist. Incredible. Uh, she's she's incredible. incredible. She's an incredible friend, mm-hmm. first and foremost. You know, that. We can get together and cook a beautiful meal together and have the greatest time laughing. When it's time to make music, we have the greatest time laughing. You know, there isn't this intensity, oh, I got to get it right. Oh, I played it wrong. Any of that. Sometimes the wrongest notes are, 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 the, are the funniest ones. Mm-hmm. And we really have a true joy when we play together. So every time I have an opportunity to do that, uh, it when we play live together, I will say that I wake up the next morning feeling like I've been through a marathon. Mm-hmm. She makes me work extra hard, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's really cool. And then I have to go see my, you know, my elbow doctor and my wrist doctor. <laughs> so, so Suzanne plays. We have uh, Joe Garcia that plays percussion with us frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife Lauren plays the harp. If we bring out our five piece group for a show, we were scheduled for one on April third at the Desert Botanical Gardens. It was mm-hmm. headed towards selling out, and it just canceled a few days ago. So. Uh, anyone who may be listening uh, who was scheduled for that show, thank you for your support. And I'm sure it will reschedule for the fall, like a lot of things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the five-piece group is pretty dynamic because it gives us an opportunity to uh, explore our music in, from a different angle. Dimitri and I write everything as two guitars. Mm-hmm. And we put ourselves in a two-guitar box often. So bringing in these awesome talents allows us to get out of our box and see our music from a bigger angle. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that show canceling. How many shows have canceled? How many gigs have you lost? Uh, Pretty much probably well, everything between now and 20 
maybe 25. Wow. You know, we lost the Desert Botanical Gardens. We had one scheduled at the Musical Instrument Museum as big public shows. A lot of what my brother and I do for a living is playing private corporate functions at all the resorts They're around that. Those are all, you know, all corporate functions canceled. Airfares, airplanes are canceled. Uh, so, you know, we were scheduled to go to Mexico April 20th through the 25th for my wife's birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just put the travel ban yep. in place with Mexico. So I'm mm-hmm. getting a refund from VRBO, there you, go. you know, on the beach house. So it's <laughs> just, this is our time. This is what we're living. This is the season we're living in now. Yeah, we're all doing it. And uh, I think it's been great because it's giving all of us an opportunity to hunker down, reel our families back in and, and be genuine and close to the people that we can often take for granted because we're so busy thinking about our lives and our careers and where we have to be at seven o'clock and it's very all of true. that. So it's very true. And then um, I was going to say, you already mentioned the cancellation. You just mentioned something else. Oh, birthdays. Your birthday is tomorrow. So oh, my, it is. My brain right. is a little slow. <laughs> that's I'm right. on this new diet. I can't keep up with my thoughts. <laughs> you should uh, have, you should have eaten the entire fruit. That's right. I should have eaten the whole orange. It said a medium and that was large. So I left some. Right. That's the you, problem. But you have a budget now. That's right. But uh, so you have a big birthday tomorrow. I do. So you're going to be what? 34 now? 35? 36. 36. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I don't do them in order either. No, yeah, me neither. So right. I had a birthday a little while back. In fact, one of the fun things for me, speaking of the Fervor Records guys, the day they called me to tell me that the summit was canceled was on my birthday, which was March 12th. <sighs> Happy birthday. And so I said, oh, man, that's horrible. That's just too bad. I, you know, we got to do it. Yeah, I completely understand. And then I said, but I want you to do something for me. And they said, what? I said, I want you, Jeff and Dave, to sing happy birthday to me. <laughs> and they did. And, and I thought I felt so blessed. It's like, who has ever had Jeff and Dave over the phone sing happy birthday to them? And oh, that was like nice. Pretty special little thing. So that was kind of fun. But uh, let's get back to, to your story. Now, you, you didn't go down to Mexico because of that travel ban. And so when is the next gig you actually have on the calendar? Uh, we have a calendar. Oh, hold on. I'm going to look at the calendar. pull out the calendar. Because I actually do have one on the calendar. I also have a text message from Suzanne Lansford, if you're listening, Suzanne. Hello. Um, we're going to play uh, Up in Pine. Okay. Believe it or not, in June. It's the second weekend of June, the second weekend of July. Friday, Saturday, June 12th and 13th. Uh, there's a little place called the Old Country Inn, mm-hmm. and they have a little bar called the Tap Room. I mean, and it literally seats maybe 20, 25 people mm-hmm. where everybody's packed in, including the musicians. And they say that it's the greatest place to be on a Friday or Saturday night in the summertime in Pine. So we booked those many months ago, and we're thinking that it's going to be a go. Uh, those shows will be on our website, theguitarbrothers.com. Uh, if cool. you need further information, you want to get out of town, get up into the cool, uh, there'll be a cool little place to go hang out, uh, like come fun. and have a beverage with us. And then between now and then, you're actually going to be on the RecordingArtist.com concert series. Yes, we are. I've started just to kind of give everybody an opportunity to play for their fans. I mean, there's a lot of music lovers who now can't go out and watch music. And they're all online jonesing and complaining about how they don't get to go out. So having an opportunity to play, I think, really helps both sides, you know, kind of feed that a little bit. So that's on Thursday night this week. So if anybody wants to see Thano and his brother Dimitri performing live, go to therecordingartist.com and sign up. It is free. Then there's a join the concert button. Just click that button and you'll be able to watch the webcast uh, audio, you know, studio microphones. The audio sounds great. looks great. 
and at least then you'll have an opportunity to see these guys between now and June. Right. And Otto, thank you again yeah. for inviting us to be on the show. It's a really great service you're doing. Um, you know, as we look at the, everybody's online all day long now. That's, you know, that's yeah. our only place where we can get together is through yeah. social media and the internet. And uh, a lot of musicians are finding a way to get themselves out there. You know, just on Sunday, Dimitri and I recorded a, a video of one of our songs and just put it out there just to say, hey, we're still here and here's a video. Enjoy yeah. the song. Uh, and then the next thing you know, we are playing at the recordingartist.com. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you know, it snuck up on us and we're really excited to do it because we had these shows coming up and we were very excited about it. So yeah, this is definitely going to be our opportunity to get that out of our system too. That's and, good. You know, everybody's kind of had to take a left, a hard left turn. Yeah. And, and now they're on the new road for a while. That's right. And it's, uh, I've seen, I, I've seen so many people performing live from their kitchen, you know, and online, everybody is everybody from Melissa Etheridge down is playing from home online all day long. That's right. And it's like, uh, so it also floods the market in the sense that now you now how are you going to get attention? I don't know. We'll go online with five million other people online, so it's kind of tough. Uh, but hopefully, you know, we can help generate a little uh, some eyeballs and a donate button, and you know, maybe make an impact on some level. You know, I but, think it also brings so much attention to the idea of it, mm-hmm. and it's going to be going on for a couple of months at least. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, consuming music online is going to become a more common thing mm-hmm. for a lot of music lovers mm-hmm. uh, performing live online is going to become a much more common thing for mm-hmm. recording and i think it just might be you know a very cool addition to how we can get music out uh you can't always schedule shows you know there's situations where promoters won't let you play for 12 or 14 weeks within a hundred miles of a particular venue, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of stuff kind of evaporates and you can, whenever you want to get out there and play, you'll be able to uh, just put on an online show. And of course, nothing beats the real thing being live in front of an audience, but it is a live audience, Mm -hmm. you know, either way. Um, Well, you know, and I always jokingly talked about when we would be on the road playing and somebody couldn't make it. It's like, why can't they just be at their house and we'll just project them on the stage on a screen and everyone would laugh. But now, <laughs> if we all do this from right. home to survive this period of time, it's, a lot of people are going to set up a nicer little looking, looking stage with a couple of lights. They want their show to look, in fact, I saw somebody today, they want their show to look nicer. They start to do that stage presentation. Well, then when venues start to open up, it's kind of like, why should I drive to you? Just put me on. In fact, I'm going to play at these five clubs tonight at seven o'clock. And you can start a whole new business model for even the venues to broadcast people that aren't even there. The audience can come in with all the screens and stereo. And from 7 to 9, we're at Bob's house. And from 9 to 10, we're coming from Thanos' house. And from 10 to 11, you know, that I think we're going to even see that happen in the marketplace. Absolutely. Which I could mean, be good for musicians. It, you know, the way technology has snuck up on us, again, you know, from the invention of TV mm-hmm. until now, it's been, it hasn't even been 100 years. Mm-hmm. And the way things, I, I was recorded on vinyl, on cassette. Uh, even Suzanne sent me a picture of a cassette tape that says Thano songs on it. And that's from 25, 30 years ago. We don't know what's on the tape, but she <laughs> took a picture of it and sent it to me. She found it in her garage. So she's going to record it into her hard drive and email me the songs. I have no idea what it is, but I mean, those things were the case back then. Now, uh, 
Dimitri and I are finishing two albums right now, but we don't know that we're going to even press them on CD mm-hmm. because the format is done. I have a handful of CDs to give away to people, and I have to ask, do you still have a CD player? I know. And commonly they say, oh, oh yeah, I have one in my car. Yeah. If their car is like before 2012. I yeah. know, seriously. I mean, I just bought a new car, and I'm kind of like, yeah, but can't you put a CD player in it? Right. Like, no. no, it's done, you know? So... <laughs> Uh, we're moving into new territory all the time. And uh, rather than mourn yeah. the formats of the past, we're going to celebrate what's coming in the future. That's true. I have a bunch of other stuff I want to talk about. And so let's let's race backwards and go through uh, your Turning Point experience. Okay. Because uh, it seems to me, I mean, I know you played with Dave Pratt's uh, Sex Machine Band. Right. So maybe a few minutes on that would be a good prep time because <laughs> okay. I know you're a rocker at heart, which is right. why Turning Point was that were the the bad boy jazz guys who kicked their instruments over at the end of the show. But Turning Point was your own personal experience, your own band that really garnered a ton of success and and had an opportunity to have Brian uh, Bromberg produce a record. You guys had a lot of charting tunes, so take either of those and just kind of give me some of that what that was like. Well, for you. I'll touch back with with Dave Pratt for just a second and. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'll say thank you, Dave, for giving my brother Dimitri and I an opportunity to have such a great, I guess, indoctrination into this music world as young people. You know, we were 17, 18 years old when we started doing that. And we're playing for huge crowds, six, eight, ten thousand people uh, every four or five or six weeks. It was a big deal to be a teenager and doing that at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned this this picture on the wall yeah, here the at the studio the yeah. of Dave crowd surfing. You you said I'm on the I'm on the stage over in this corner. Well, I remember that crowd. show we were playing at the indoor football arena. It was completely sold out. Mm-hmm. I think Dwayne Eddy might have been opened up for us. I believe it was. Okay, and uh, I remember watching Dave crowd surf. And nobody really knew if he was going to make it back because people were ripping his clothes off. His shoes are gone, you know, in that picture. Uh, People were just ripping parts of his outfit off just to take home his memorabilia. And to be a part of that whole thing was a really great grooming experience for us because it it caused us to lose whatever stage fright we might have. Mm -hmm. So becoming performers in a live way was groomed in that that world. Fantastic, yeah. We moved on, you know... The, the creation of Turning Point was a little bit of a, of a four or five year period of, of experimentation with music. Uh, I was really gravitating towards instrumental music in everything I listened to from as a teenager listening to Rush and all of their instrumentals and learning mm-hmm. time signatures and learning different ways of composing and making an instrumental song interest, interesting because so many of us are accustomed to lyrics and how lyrics frame music frame lyrics and a story and all of that. You have to tell a story with music now without lyrics. And Mm -hmm. that's tricky. Uh, So we started experimenting with instrumental things. And at that time there was one radio station in Phoenix that played instrumental music and it was K jazz radio. And it was an evening show where they played contemporary instrumentals. And I started to hear this sound. I heard this music and started listening to uh, the various artists they were playing and it just felt really good to me to play music in that same style. So went off to music school for a couple of years, came back. And That's met, right, you went to GIT. You went to GIT. When I came back from GIT, uh, Mike Broning, great keyboard player and mm-hmm. Grammy-winning composer. That's right. Uh, and I started working together. Uh, 
in and around February, it was a January, we were both broke and we're trying to think of a way to earn some extra money. So we wrote a Valentine's Day song that the girl's name could be, insert any girl's name into the song. And then we were trying to sell it to guys who would come in and sing the song and then give it to their girlfriend or wife or whoever right. as a Valentine's Day gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, that business model completely failed. Yeah. But uh, a songwriting partnership was born out of it. And we started writing instrumental music together. Uh, we brought in our drummer, Bruce Tadola, uh, And some of the guys, honestly, from uh, a guy named Derek Serenian, who was playing with uh, Racer X and another uh, uh, Dream Theater, mm-hmm. the band Dream Theater, mm-hmm. progressive metal band. He was friends of our drummer at the time. When they were coming through town, he would come in and play keyboard tracks for us. But we didn't have a band name and we had nothing. We didn't know what we had, but we were just making music. Some I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone at K-Jazz Radio and sent them a three-song cassette and said, listen, Please just give me a professional opinion. What do you think of the music? Are we on to something? What can we do differently? And I didn't hear back for two weeks. So then I called to see if they received the cassette in the mail. And I was put on the phone with their program director who said, Oh, yeah, listen, I need to know the name of your band because we've been playing your song Island for seven days now. And it's the number one requested song on the radio station. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We, they're playing it from a cassette. I mean, there's tape hiss, warble, all the flaws of the format. And it's on the radio. And people really like it. And we don't have a band name. And we don't have an album. Now what? So, so it, was, it, became, it reminds me of the Buddy Holly story. It, yeah. It was a, so we were panicking. Going, oh, no. Did we just miss our opportunity because we're not prepared? So it took us another year to finish the album. Mm-hmm. And uh, we came up with the name Turning Point, and from there on, it just became a thing. We were on the radio on that station. They changed their format. Another jazz station opened up, picked us up because we were accelerating in popularity. Uh, they changed their format. Then the next jazz station that opened up to replace it picked us up, and you know we just kept maximizing opportunities and not burning bridges. Mm-hmm. The key to that is just we were really humble low maintenance guys that people enjoyed spending time with mm-hmm. and uh, we weren't demanding we weren't you know all the things that that uh, artists can be we were not that mm-hmm. because we really we wanted the songs to be the artists not us mm-hmm. so that was our our mission and it worked out really great it's some mm-hmm. of the greatest times of my life how so. many albums did you guys put out turning point did seven and then a live concert dvd mm-hmm. uh, we were in and out of three different record contracts mm-hmm. uh Ironically, you know, Turning Point, it never ended. We just don't do it very often. Uh, So when we really kind of quit the music business, because it just doesn't make sense anymore, it was too difficult. You know, we had an L.A. booking agent, a Los Angeles manager, a tech, a drum tech, a guitar tech. You know, we we had a lot of people working with us and working for us, and we just couldn't earn any money doing it. Uh, Ten years later, after all of the... uh, Things were put in place to collect uh, royalty revenue on the internet. We're starting to get like respectable checks, and it's weird how you know ten years after the band ceased active operations mm-hmm. is when we're actually starting to get paid. And it's probably because we don't have lawyers anymore, because the lawyers would take it all right now if we still had them. So. That's right. 
Now, you went through in, uh, other iterations of that band as well as far as players. I mean, you mentioned Bruce being uh, your original drummer, but then there was John That's right. Herrera who came in playing drums. So John Herrera came on board specifically as a percussionist. Okay. So we had a situation where there was basically two drummers, but John's rig was primarily percussion, bongos, congas, timbales, and various types of hand toys and all kinds of things. And it was a very dynamic show because... You know, John is an outstanding drummer in his own right, and Bruce is an outstanding drummer in his own right. They're completely different styles. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is we would have a part of the show where uh, it would be the drum feature part of the show, but it was the drummer's feature. So John and Bruce would play together, and then through the course of it, they would kind of walk off of each other's instruments and play everything they could to get to the other instrument. Now we're talking about guitar stands, mic stands. They're just playing as they walk around these drum sets. And then John grabs the drum kit, and Bruce grabs the percussion, and then they do the other half of the solo like that. And it was a very (laughs) cool thing, a very cool time. Uh, At some point, it was Bruce's time to leave the group. And John had to figure out how to do both parts at the same time. And he was panicky. So for two months, we rehearsed every single day at John's house while he set up. Honestly, got a drum set that was the size of a living room, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to play all the drums and all the percussion at the same time. And slowly but surely, he pared it down and pared it down. And he ended up getting the, uh, the nickname, the octopus, because he was playing something different with each foot, something different with each hand. He had stuff in his mouth had stuff hanging off of his neck. He wore a microphone around his neck to pick up the little hand toys and things that he'd be playing in between stuff because there wouldn't normally be a microphone in the middle of the drum set. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of this stuff he did, and it, that became a signature part of his style. Uh, so it was cool. re- really neat watching all of that develop. So you think we'll, we'll see another Turning Point show at some point? I think so. We might even see one sooner than later because it would be a good time to, to revive the band and this whole online thing. Why not? Yeah. Why so not? I'm right. just announcing it now. It's a teaser now, but there you go, guys. It, all it'll take is a text message or two and we'll be able to put it together. <laughs> so, Well, that would be a lot of fun. I think a lot of people would enjoy that. So um, you, you did have an opportunity to work with Brian Bromberg. Right. That had to be exciting for you guys. That was exciting. That was a real dream come true for me. Uh, I had discovered Brian Bromberg on that jazz radio station that we were initially on, and I thought he was an electric guitar player because he was playing what's called a piccolo bass, which is a bass that's tuned up in the same register as a guitar, and he had all kinds of guitar effects going on it, and it sounded like lead guitar playing to me. And I thought to myself, boy, I sure would love to play lead guitar like that. I didn't realize I'd end up meeting him someday. So I'm at the music school. Brian Bromberg shows up to do a clinic and a seminar for the school. And I'm sitting in the audience in the second row, just going crazy, loving the music because I know all the songs because I'm a big fan of his. And I'm next to this just lovely older woman who's sitting next to me. And she's totally into it also. And she's looking at me. And I'm looking at her, and then she hands me a business card, and she ends up being Brian Bromberg's manager, okay? And I'm like, are you kidding me? So from that point, uh, you know, she was a great uh, mentor to me. She showed me where to get cassettes manufactured in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then when Turning Point was, was structuring our, our third album, I believe it was, uh, we had a meeting, and we thought, you know, we need to really align ourselves with a producer that's well-established in the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Lucille Hunt was her name. And Lucille took my call and said, hey, well, let me talk to Brian and see. And she started negotiations and we met with Brian and we had a great kindred. It was all based on, you know, drinking wine and laughing, Mm -hmm. you know, which is Brian is a bass player like 
he's just a beast. He's one of the beasts that you can't even categorize him in the, the top 10 because, you know, the top, he, he's just in there. It's just great working with him as a producer and a composer. He's a genius. He's meticulous. Uh, he's definitely someone you can't, who won't let you get away with anything in the studio. Mm-hmm. The sense of time is ridiculous. And uh, we hired him to be our producer and we all became great friends and at that point, he started going to the record companies that he knows in Los Angeles. And instead of saying, hey, would you listen to this band? I think they've got something. He would go over to their houses and have a bottle of wine because he knew these folks. He said, oh, you need to check this band out. And if you pass on this band, it's probably a big mistake. This is how he approached it because he's got <laughs> a great. big mouth like that. And it worked. That's great. Next thing you know, we're talking to this label. We're talking to that label. We're playing the Catalina Island Jazz Festival. We're on the radio in 100 cities and we're driving around in the minivan from town to town making it happen we toured with stanley clark that has you know been we did too. a lot of stuff you know chasing after that so we chased the dream and we got the dream and mm-hmm. lived it mm-hmm. so you know that's awesome well let me ask you this you know you just referenced making records and touring is there one you prefer over the other or is it just they're different and you love them both uh i think they're both completely different experiences the making records part it's definitely a deep experience because, you know, I, I'm an obsessive compulsive person. I don't use the word disorder because I think a obsessive compulsive is the key to my artist. So when I can really dig in and tune everything out and forget about the clock and next thing you know, 17 hours later, I haven't slept, showered or consumed anything other than coffee. I've got a great song sitting in front of me. And I'm really, really happy about it. So Mm -hmm. that is the artistic process. And then uh, when it's time to perform those songs live in front of an audience, if we haven't done it already, the first time we play a new song in front of an audience is a very nerve-wracking experience because we have such a deep relationship with that song, but the audience has no relationship with that song. Correct. So... The applause that happens at the end of the song, I think, validates that we're onto something good. And then, you know, the songs begin to take on their own identity live because we really never play them like they were in the studio. Again, uh, we, we evolve with the songs. We let the songs evolve with us. We keep the basic structure and people that are accustomed to hearing us play the same song show after show and look forward to it are going to get that song. Mm-hmm. But if Suzanne happens to be playing with us that night, they're going to get our song with Suzanne's twist. Or there's an accordion and piano player named Yannis Gudelis. Uh, Yannis might bring out his accordion. And next thing you know, we let the song kind of become improvisational again to let Yannis be featured on it. So not only does the audience get a brand new experience, so do we. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't really plan or rehearse any of that. Uh, we just know if we start the song... We're going to end the song at some point. And That's anything right. that happened in the middle, okay? hopefully it was great. And yeah. if we hit a few wrong notes, you know for sure we're going to laugh about it. Yeah. So. Well, you know, it takes a certain talent to be comfortable in that environment. And uh, I find that that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed working with you so much in the studio and, and continue to is because I could push you around and you wouldn't fall down. And I mean, for example, another session guitar player I worked with one time, I said, hey, I just want you to take in this bar right here. I just want you to make some noise with your guitar and not play anything. Just I need to hear some noise. And they were like, well, if that's what you want, then you have the wrong guy. And I'm like, OK, I have the wrong guy. Note taken. You know, well, let's go on. But with you, I could always do anything. And in fact, 
with that in mind, I brought a couple examples of things you've done for me. Oh, really? That were kind of odd for you, but man, you did them. And so, for example, uh, you told me this story, and I've I've told it to people since. But you were at my house one day recording in my little home studio, and I was doing a song of mine that ended up being probably one of my most popular songs by the end. And as I was walking out of the room where you were sitting with your guitar and I headed to my little control room, I said, hey, do you play slide? And you said, no, I don't. And I said, well, you do today. And I closed the door. (laughs) And you're like, okay. And here's what you did the first time you ever tried to cut a slide guitar on a record at my house. Check this little bit out. And there was one take. So check this out. They'll ask your name. They'll ask your number. They'll smile that smile. For years, they'll tell you their thoughts, and then they'll tell you yours. So that was the first time you played slide guitar on a record. Wow. You're right, it is. And did I eat? Was I even using a slide? Or could, I don't could, believe we had could, one. I, I may have been using like a ratchet wrench or even a or screwdriver. A pan, yeah, I think it was a screwdriver. It could have been a screwdriver. I think it yeah, was. just a it had to have been round and steel. And right, that's uh, <laughs> just memories. But see, a <laughs> lot of fantastic. guys you couldn't you couldn't get them to do that in, on a record. Because they would say, "Oh my God, people will know I did this, and I'm not going to do that." But I think you you've always looked at it like. Uh, oh, that's what we're going to try and do? Okay, let's do it. It's like, right. I'm willing to jump off that cliff. Like you said, being a kid with a bike, jumping over garbage cans. You might get hurt. So what? We'll find out. Right. Let's find out. It's the key. You, would you know, go and Otto, I really love the challenge because yeah. oh, I can tell. I'm not uh, an expert at any particular kind of music. You know, I never studied country. I never studied jazz. I never studied these things. Mm-hmm. I just started playing around with these things. So I've dabbled a lot with a lot of different things. And then you come around like a mad scientist and you think of things that no one would have thought of on a very common instrument. And rather than even thinking of what it's going to sound like, you just say, Hey, do something like this. Let's see what this sounds like. And you know, it, uh, those sessions are always a fun, challenging thing. By the end of them, I drive away not knowing what happened. Right. Because I played a bunch of stuff that I never would have considered proper music. Right. Never would have considered it. But then you put it all together and mix it. And then I'm like, oh, now I understand where you were hearing. So it's been uh, a really great honor for me to, to at least be that part of your toolbox. Yeah, wow. and, and for me, in fact, I want to play one other one for you because it's kind of a, it was a lesson for me too. I said to you, now I want you to play something that you've never played before, and then we hit record and you played something you know that you've played before because that's an impossible thing to say right. to someone. And I realized at that very moment that's the dumbest thing a producer could ever ask someone to do. I immediately stopped the recording got up and we tuned your guitarist. I said, take, take this string and tune it down a half a step. Okay, now take this string and tune it up a half a step. Now, play something you'd always play. And I hit record again. And you ended up playing a melody you never would have played because your fingers are landing in the wrong right. spot. Okay. And then I said, oh, now that's brilliant. Now, tune your guitar right, learn that lick, and that's going to be the bit of the oh, song. Okay. And that's how this Now I track, can't wait to hear it. What is it? What is it? That's how this track was started. So check this out.
God. That guitar riff is yeah, so cool is to me. The so melody. Cool. It's strange. Who would have heard that in their head, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting way and to I, do I've it. I've always felt that if you just get somebody out of their normal process, then they find a whole new a whole new way in a whole new place. And often with a singer, you do that by physically manipulating them, making them do some exercises or make them sit down and sing, make them bend over a chair and sing, just change their body. And then even if you put them back where they were, they're 100% different energy. Right. And so with a musician, a lot of times it's just, especially a talented one, if they let you push them around, it's stuff like that that open up a whole new world for you. You know, And it's fun to see you there because you can run there. So those are just a couple of examples of stuff on my records that you've done that I've just been blown away by uh, your ability to let me bend you and you just keep going, you know. It's a lot of fun. It's like you're a magic weapon in the recording studio. So there you have it. And so now let's, uh, enough of that stuff. I want to play another one of your songs and we've got about 15 minutes. Um, so I have two albums and I wanted you to pick a tune from either Forever or Matador? Matador, that'd be Turning Point. Okay. You want to spin something off of that? Sure. Uh, why don't you play the title track? It's it's kind of long. I think it's around five minutes-ish. About four and a half. Okay. All right. Can you tell me a little bit about it? So uh, Matador, uh, the primary uh, inspiration for that song was came from John Herrera. Turning Point's process was simply... Each member of the band would bring a concept to the writing sessions, and then the band would roll with that member's concept of a song. So we were a collaboration in its purest sense like that. So uh, John didn't have the ability to play the guitar, but he had these ideas. So he kind of wrote the melody, and he said, play this, Lana, play that. And we put this song together, and uh, we knew that the title track of our album was going or the, the title of the album was going to be called Matador. So... The point was to make this song fierce, to make it like a raging bull, but still capture the international flair of our sound with the heavy heaviness of our rock backgrounds, all of us, uh, with the jazz background from our keyboard player. Dimitri and I have a very strong uh, Spanish and Mediterranean influence to our well, writing. Well, Greek history. We're Greek history. You guys played uh, as a belly dancer. Yeah, back we do in play the, the Opa break a plate yeah. Greek thing. We do do that, yeah. uh, which we're getting requests for, by the way, for yeah. Thursday Night Sing at the Recording Artist. Oh, yeah. So I just don't know how we're going to do that. Well, it's only original music. I right know now, that. So, so yeah, mm. we just may jam a little bit. Write you know? a version of it. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the idea with with uh, Matador. It's the title track to that album. Cool. Uh, it's a great tune, and we love playing it live every time. All right, let's check it out. This is Matador from Turning Point here on the Auto D Show, where my guest is Thanosanis. Check it out.
listening to Auto D coming at you live. And that was Matador, the title track from Turning Point's Matador CD. Yeah, did you just hear John Herrera just blazing drums all over the end of that song? Yes, everybody. We're like in three different time signatures at the same time, and we don't even know how we ended together. Well, it's that an incredible crazy. piece of work. I really yeah. love that record. There's a lot of great stuff on that whole album, actually. So um, that was a great piece of, of Turning Point and kind of represents the energy that you guys had. At one point, some of the work you guys did, you described to me years ago, is trying to be the best elevator music you know anybody would hear, the most melodic elevator right. music. Right. I think the way I phrase it, I said, uh, it's not necessarily elevator music, but if it were in elevators, elevators would be a cooler place to be. <laughs> there you go. Right. <laughs> yeah, you might have had a few lines with that, with that, yeah, with that right. concept, but I remember your thought was, we want everyone to listen, so we don't want to interrupt them. So we don't want to be so uh, dramatic or, or such a interesting thing that everybody stops what they're doing or turns it off because they're paying attention to it. Well, that was part of the radio format, too. You know, it was called Smooth Jazz, and the point was to have it on quietly in the background while people worked. And a lot of songs didn't get played on the radio because they were kind of too cool. The music was entirely a little bit too good. People would stop what they're doing and listen to it, and offices were afraid it would interrupt productivity so that's why a lot of that music seemed very very plain mm-hmm. and very very simple and it was very hard for us to carve a notch out in that format because we're pretty far from plain and simple yeah uh, so <laughs> yeah well you did a great job and have a great body of work and then also now after uh turning point and besides playing your own solo gigs and, and being a session player probably in every studio in this town that's for sure you also uh, did a stint playing on the road with Sister Sludge. I sure did. How did you get into that, and how long did that last? It's a cool story. Um, I have a music friend. You, I'm sure you know him. His name is Al Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Al's a great bass player. Yes, works he with is. Stevie Nicks. He's incredible. He's great dude. And he called me and said, Hey, listen, man, are you available to come do a session tomorrow on Spanish guitar? I'm working with this lady, is what he said. You know, she doesn't have a lot of budget. You know, would you be willing to come and do it for blah, blah, blah? I said, sure, I'd love to, because I just love to say yes. I love to be involved in things. And I, uh, I get to the studio and walk in, and lo and behold, Al Ortiz is producing for Joni Sledge of Sister Sledge, doing Joni's solo material. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a particular song where she wanted to hear Spanish guitar. So I'd never met Joni. I'd never met the girls. They'd been in town here for a long time, but I just never had an opportunity to work with them. Uh, and I didn't even get to know her or even say hi. They just put me in the booth and started rolling tape, and I just started playing. And uh, I did one pass through a song, and then the tape machine stopped, and all the microphones were shut off, and I sat behind the glass and watched the engineer, the producer, uh, her guitar player, and Joni talking and talking and talking, and I'm getting more nervous and more nervous and more because, you know, I I don't know if I did well until they say, hey, yeah, we loved it. So it was really nerve-wracking, and then Joni comes on the talkback mic and says, Thano, do you have a passport? I'm like, right. At, that's not, not, I loved your pass. I loved the, what you were playing. It's like, do you have a passport? They were past that. They, they were way past that. So I, need, I needed to get a passport in three weeks. There was a show in Puerto Vallarta that I had to go play. Uh, her guitar player needed to leave. He couldn't do those shows. And I jumped on board. And uh, from that point, started working with Joni very, very close, helped her finish the solo album. Uh, helped put a band together for her, brought in Dominic Amato and some of his musicians. And uh, for six years, flew around the world getting my my passport stamps 
playing We Are Family with the girls. Uh, did a lot of great shows with Sister Sledge. and That had to be pretty you know, exciting. Really. I resigned from the group really just to stay home and start a family. Mm-hmm. So I went from We Are Family to I Am Family, <laughs> and uh, I never looked back. So. Mm-hmm. So you guys played uh, in your trips around the world. What was what would you say is the biggest audience you had an opportunity to play for? Oh man, it was always in the thousands. Mm-hmm. I mean, always. These guys were uh, loved everywhere. Yeah, it, it was really great. But we did a lot of shows in Europe, in in, in, the, in the Netherlands, in Holland, and uh, in Germany. And those audiences are really engaged, and they know the words to every single song. So, mm-hmm. so at, at some point, the audience is as loud as the monitors, mm-hmm. and it's a really it, it's it's an <laughs> overwhelming feeling because. You know, you're on a big stage with big sound, and that in itself is a big feeling. Mm-hmm. Then the audience gets that big, and it's huge. You know, it definitely uh, it takes me over. Mm-hmm. I get in the zone, and then I don't know what happened to me at the end of the show. I'm like, what just happened? It's where the adrenaline, I think, is still there, but the reason for the adrenaline is now gone. So mm-hmm. it's this awkward thing I have to detox from. That's interesting. So how about the family? You just mentioned I am family when you when you kind of retired from that gig. So what's the family these days? Uh, the family is first my wife, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been married for just about seven years. Uh, she plays the harp. We didn't realize that we'd have a band together, but we have a band called He Said, She Said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very cool. We play a lot of different pop songs and a lot of songs of our own. On acoustic guitar On, and harp. Uh, yeah, nylon guitar and harp. Uh, it's songs that you wouldn't expect to hear in that format. Uh, we have a website. It's called thanoandlolo.com. That's T-H-A-N-O-A-N-D-L-O-L-O.com. Uh, there's videos there you can see in Harris. We have a very cool wedding business with that thing because a husband and wife harp and guitar team is ideal for weddings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cool thing for us. And we also do a lot of corporate things. And then Lauren comes out and plays the shows with Dimitri and I. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's part of the bigger Sonus music band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's cool to have these different things going. So. And then you got a couple little ones running around? I have little Charlie, who's three and a half years old. And he's like a music, music he's guy, He's a right? music guy. He is playing and singing He's playing the drums like every little kid does, but he's actually playing We Will Rock You and singing it. And when the mic isn't loud enough, he yells at me. He says, I need it louder, Dad. I need it louder. I'm like, man, he's like more me already. He's a little diva. So uh, we celebrate music with it. Our whole living room is filled with different instruments, and he's constantly mm-hmm. playing them all. Now he's trying to learn how to play a major scale on a harp by himself. Wow. He won't let us show him. By ear. By ear. So like now you. we have a little girl named Impatient. Marilyn, who's 15 months, and she wants to do everything her brother's doing. So now she's over on his drum set, playing mm-hmm. his drums, doing these, because she's mimicking everything he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who knows where they're going to go, but when it's time to get them a teacher, they, they, they came to the right family if they wow. want music in their world. So That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to see what those kids are going to do. You have a family band maybe in the end. Well, I figure if my son's a drummer, he's either going to be my retirement or a permanent roommate. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You never know. Oh, man, we are running out of time already. I can't believe it. That's, that was fast. That was fast. For an hour. Wow. Thank you for having me, Otto. This has been a great a great, great way to spend my quarantine. In my quarantine My coronacation, time. so to exactly. speak. Exactly. Right. Well, we'll see you Thursday at the recordingartist.com for Thursday the concert. Night. 7 o'clock? Yep. 7 o'clock, 7 o'clock showtime. We'll be on. So uh, join us if you can. And we'll see you there. Thanks for coming on, Tano. Thanks, Otto. Take care.